Hi, hey, Julie. Lisa. Long time no see. Do you miss me yet? I do. I was just going to say I miss you, but we're twinsies tonight. We're wearing our matching Boston uh, Marathon 1972 to commemorate the 50 years of women running Boston sweatshirts that we got at the expo. So we, we both happen to have those on tonight because they're really comfy, awesome sweatshirts. So if anyone ran the race and didn't get one of these sweatshirts, I think that's my favorite item yet for the over the past several years. I love my sweatshirt and hot tip. I actually ordered mine at the expo online on adidas.com because it was so chaotic and I just didn't want to deal with finding my size. Well, so, hot um, tip, they were there on Friday. There was So I arrived on Friday and I went to the expo on Friday. It was a whole round rack of them, all the sizes, everything. By the time we went back on Saturday morning, there was another rack of different sweatshirts and those were all gone. And we only found a couple stashed away and hidden. People must have hidden them places. So another pro tip, if you want to get the best gear and you don't get there early enough, go online. You can find it. Adidas will have them have them online. You can order it later. Oftentimes they go on sale after you can wait till after the race and a couple months later, they often go on sale. But yes, you went right on your phone in the expo and just found it and ordered it and we got right out of there. So um, yeah, so that is a tip that um, things go fast at the expo. If you, there's something that you want, things go really fast. Not the jackets, jackets, celebration jackets seem to be there the whole weekend, um, but things go fast and small sizes for women, especially go fast. For sure. So Lisa, <laughs> why don't we start and just talk about our weekend. And for those uh, listening, this is just going to be the two of us doing a breakdown of our Boston Marathon weekend. So now's the time to get off the podcast if this doesn't interest you, but hopefully we will have a lot of listeners by the end because hopefully we're giving the people what they want. And uh, yeah, it was a fantastic weekend and I'm excited to recap it with you. So why don't you get started, Lisa, since you got to Boston first? Yeah, I'm wondering how we're not going to have like a five-hour podcast because I feel like we had so much, um, such an experience and we experienced so much in the days we were there that we'll try to, we'll try to hit the highlights and hit the the points that are really relevant to people who um, either just want to hear about the weekend or who are, you know, headed to Boston next year and want to get a sense of what the weekend is like. So um, for uh, the second year in a row, uh, was starting in October, I went up on Friday um, as, as our kids, both, you know, both of our kids get older, we have a little more flexibility in when we're able to get up to Boston. So I flew up on um, Friday afternoon and got really lucky in that my flight, I, there was there was a lot of wind in my flight that normally takes about 50 minutes from DC to Boston, took about 30, <laughs> not even actually, I think it took less. It was, we were, we were in 40 minutes early. Um, so a really easy trip in, landed early, got to, um, I took a, a lift from the airport to the hotel, um, um, some tips on hotel reservations. Uh, we had booked, a, we always encourage people to book hotels early. Um, because they will book up and hotels will start opening their um, reservations probably in the next month or so. So book your hotels early. And we had booked a hotel um, for Saturday through Tuesday. We had decided to stay through Tuesday. So we had that booking. But when I decided to go Friday, I needed a hotel room. So um, I just went online and did a last minute search. And there are hotels that are available uh, last minute. So I found a last minute hotel. I stayed the first night at the Hilton Back Bay. So they had availability, um, you know, maybe a week before the race. So I uh, took a lift there pretty easy. Um, rush hour traffic can be a little bit actually almost took longer uh, to get in the lift from the airport to the hotel than it did from the from uh, from DC to to uh, 
to Boston in the airplane, um, but got there, dropped my stuff real quick, and I headed over the expo right away. We always encourage our runners to um, try to go as quickly as they can. You know, get the expo kind of out of the way as soon as you get there. And so that was kind of foremost in my mind is just go get my bib, get everything done and get out. And I had no no lines, no crowds. Um, the expo itself was um, you know pretty uncrowded and we weren't quite sure what the expo would look like in October. The expo literally was just big, big pickup and a few of the big sponsors had um, kind of a, you know, some displays, but it was nothing, nothing at all like a normal expo, which is hundreds and hundreds of vendors. Um, so when I first got to the expo, I remember I was texting you saying it looks bigger than last year, but it's really only the major sponsors again, but I hadn't seen the other half of the expo convention center, which was back to a normal um, expo, you know, with all of the vendors and everything you might need to buy with from nutrition to apparel to body glide to all of that, you know, all of the all the normal expo stuff. So it was pretty much back to a normal expo. And, um, you know, interestingly, uh, uh, you know, mask mandates have been lifted in, in our area and in Boston um, and, and not a lot of mask wearing. So it was a little um, a little uh, disconcerting to be all of a sudden with a lot of people, again, a lot not wearing masks, um, you know, plenty had masks on as well. Uh, but that was, you know, it was, it was kind of back to that normal expo craziness, although Friday luckily was not um, not super crowded. Uh, so I grabbed myself some dinner and just um, kind of took it took it easy for the night, enjoyed a quiet night uh, before waking up because you were going to be in early the next morning. So why don't we transition and talk about your trip up to Boston? This is so embarrassing, but I decided to share it on the podcast. So I had a really uneventful trip up. But um, it was so uneventful that I was really just, I fell asleep on the plane. I, I took a very early flight. I was a little out of it when uh, my plane landed, walked to a baggage claim, and there was no one around me at the baggage claim because most people who fly from D.C. to Boston, it, there weren't a lot of marathoners. I didn't even recognize one on my flight are more commuters. So most people don't check luggage. There's a point to this, and that is that I picked up my luggage. It's a distinct big red suitcase that I only use for Boston because it's big enough to carry all my crap. And I hopped into a cab because Uber was having some price surging at the time and a taxi was cheaper at that moment. And I get a call from 617. I figured a call from that area code was just confirming dinner reservations in Boston. Picked it up and it was Delta Airlines. Miss um, Sapper, we believe that you might have taken someone else's suitcase, which I've never done that. I'm I'm a seasoned traveler. How embarrassing. I mean, how stupid of me to take the other very distinct red suitcase and be so confident to not even look. So I asked the taxi driver, I was so embarrassed. I was like, can you please turn around? I took the wrong bag. He started laughing. We were halfway to Boston. So nice. Turned around, came back to the airport. He happily waited for me, I'm sure with the meter on, but I didn't care. And I run in. And I was worried that the people waiting for me were going to just be so angry. But it was this nice young gal with two cute French braids and a Bowerman Track Club backpack. I had taken a suitcase from a Bowerman Track Club runner. Her name is Sarah. So if anyone listening knows a Sarah from the Bowerman Track Club, I did look at their roster. I don't think she's on the professional team, but probably on the amateur team. But nonetheless, Still a fast runner going to Boston who needed her red suitcase. We laughed because our suitcases indeed looked identical. She was so sweet. I introduced myself. I wished her luck. I said, may this be the worst thing that happens to you all weekend. Hopped back in the cab and 
met Chilise at our hotel and everything went smoothly from there. But oh my God, I was so embarrassed. So that's my funny um, for the weekend. And then you kindly accompanied me back to the expo on Saturday so that I could pick up my um, bib quickly. And just like you did, I got out of there pretty quickly. And then we went to the Fairmont Copley Hotel and we picked up our press passes. So we don't quite understand how we were eligible for these press passes, but we were told we could get them. And so we applied and we were so grateful that the BAA decided that we were worthy of media passes. So we had media passes. They are these giant tags that we wore. And we also got this media jacket and it allowed us access to events. And we did go to some and Lisa, you'll talk about that. And we, we did feel like it allowed us to get a little bit closer to the stage for certain things. But, you know, we probably could have used those media passes in a different way. But frankly, we were running the race and we had things to do with our own runners. But it was certainly like one of the coolest things to have access to events that we otherwise wouldn't. And it was super fun. And uh, from there, we went to the finish line, took our picture and we met someone we recognized in the wild from Instagram. And that is um, her Instagram moniker is Heather Runs, um, R-U-N-Z. Her name is Heather Schultz. Um, she is a prolific marathoner. She's a master's runner and frequently low three hour to sub three marathoner well into her 40s. And her daughter is Amber Runs, who we've talked about a little bit on the podcast because she's a phenomenal high school cross country and track athlete who is very public about her struggles with her eating disorder and her, how she overcame that. So we see Heather, recognize her right away, and uh, we're going to have her on the podcast we hope. And she couldn't have been nicer. And um, that was fun to meet up with her and take some pictures. And uh, yeah, then from there, I believe uh, we then headed to the uh, podcast garage where we prepared to do our live podcast with our friend Sheree Turner, the host of the Strides Forward podcast. And we're going to get into that in a different episode because the recording of our live podcast event that took place in Boston on Saturday will be a podcast episode, but everything went so smoothly. And let's just say, I don't know about you, Lisa, I felt so just blown away and emotional about having the opportunity to interview an icon like Marilyn Bevins and a new icon like Megan Kripchen. And also seeing faces out there in this audience, in this place that wasn't really near downtown Boston where people traveled to go watch this interview it just it really blew me away and I felt like all of the prep that we had done we did a lot of work for this and Cherie we had calls and meetings to prepare for this and I felt like we were prepared and as a result we were really able to just get in there and enjoy it how about you I thought it was great and it was something different that we've never done before I thought it was really nice that um, you know, for Boston 2020, we had planned with Cherie to do an event. It wasn't at that point uh, focused on women because, uh, you know, it wasn't the 50th anniversary. But at that point, we were talking about doing a podcast, live podcast recording and a panel discussion on the Boston Marathon with her. She's also a experienced Boston Marathoner. She's a resident of Boston, the Boston area. And we were going to have a panel discussion. And we were so disappointed. We had our travel booked early that year to go up early to do it. And we were so disappointed after all that planning. We weren't able to do it. So it was kind of nice that it came full circle. And not only that, but we had this really specific focus this time that was really, um, really just a great, um, great discussion. Um, like you said, I was really um, 
touch that we had such a great uh, live audience. We had our runners who had come in um, from all over the, the country um, come make a special trip out to watch. Uh, we had Tony Reed, who is the director and producer of the upcoming documentary, Breaking Three Hours, uh, of which Marilyn Bevins is, is one of the featured athletes. He came along with um, some of the athletes that they had traveled with, uh, uh, and we got to meet him. And so it was just such a um, it was a really, like you said, a really nice community event. So we will release the recording of that. It is not to be missed. Um, both Marilyn and Megan have such great advice um, that really, um, you know, even they're though they're coming from two different ends of the spectrum of running, you know, one from, you know, 50, from experience the Boston Marathon almost 50 years ago to one ex just experiencing her first Boston Marathon. They had a lot of similar you know, threads in their advice and their experience. And so it's like timeless. So, so many experiences that we have are timeless. So definitely not to be missed. So that was excellent. And again, you know, left on a high. I think one of the one of the um, the risks of Boston weekend, and this is for anybody who's going up there, but, you know, specifically we felt it a lot this year is to get really drained of energy early on in the weekend because there's so much excitement going on and we had a lot of excitement so it was you know we kept saying we'd get back to our hotel room and it would just be we like oh my gosh i'm exhausted i mean like oh you're on a high you get this adrenaline high it's like almost like a caffeine crash like you know you get that or that sugar high and then you come crashing down so um you know so we left there and you had a nice dinner with your uncle i went back and had a quiet dinner um back in the city and, um, you know, we just kind of hunkered down at night. We were both exhausted and, um, you know, had a quiet night um, and woke up on Sunday morning to head out for our shakeout run. And, um, uh, you know, we weren't sure what to expect. We never know, you know, it's hard to tell who's gonna show up, how many people are gonna show up. We weren't sure this year, it was uh, Easter Sunday. We knew, um, we knew there were a lot of other shakeout runs going on. We knew some of the runners that we coach and, and podcast listeners were not staying right in the city. So we weren't quite sure how many people would would make it, but um, true to form, just like last year, we had a huge turnout and um, it was, again, it's like a reunion of old friends and many people that we haven't met before, but we feel like we know. Um, we had um, uh, some, just some really interesting guests come, um, we can talk about them, but we had uh, just such a diverse group of runners. And again, just underscoring uh, what the running community is like and and um, kind of the shared values everybody in the running community has so that was that was really great and we did just a very short uh you know shakeout run one lap of the uh, we met in the boston commons and one lap of the boston commons is about a mile so we did two laps maybe some people did one just one some people may have done an extra one but most of us did two laps so it was about 20 minutes or two miles of just really easy conversation getting to talk to people um, giving out, we got to give out some run farther and faster goodies. We gave out visors and really cool arm warmers. Um, got to see a lot of our runners and um, hung out. And and I will say the one thing I remember the most about Sunday is how cold it was. <laughs> remember, we were so cold. It was very, it was just kind of a bitter day. It was um, not super sunny and it was windy and uh, it was really cold. But um, but we we felt good when we were running. But once we stopped, it was it was very cold. Yeah, we were definitely nervous about that. I think for me, the shakeout run, it, it, it's so emotional because we pour so much of our heart and soul into communicating with our runners. And it's often just behind a screen, obviously. We don't get to meet anyone face-to-face -face when they live in other parts of the country. And often for us, it's the first time or maybe the only time we'll see some of our runners throughout the weekend. So having the opportunity to connect with many of them, the shakeout was really special. My regret though, is I didn't get to connect with everyone and I feel badly about that. I know that there were folks there that 
I, I wish I could have talked to. And, you know, it's just kind of, it's quick and, you know, you do the best you can. So for anyone listening, I'm sorry if I didn't get a chance to connect with you. I really wish I could have, but the folks I did get to connect with, including one of our past guests, Joe Drake, he was our guest, of course, who did what Shalane Flanagan did by running um, all the world marathon majors, except for Tokyo, within a seven-week period. And he's just amazing. And he ended up having a great race, by the way. And it was so neat to meet him again, meet him in person for the first time. And then, of course, so many of our other past podcast guests were there. And then we met a runner for all the way from Tanzania, which was just really amazing. And her name is Annalise. So Annalise, we hope you had a great race. And it was really nice to meet you and learn about your life in Tanzania. I have forgot to tell you something. We'll I'll, I'll talk about this a little more later, but I wanted to mention, I forgot to mention to you that, you know, I took the bus separately from you, the shuttles to Hopkinton. And I sat down to this sweet woman. I'll talk about it a little bit more later, but um, she's a college student who was running her first Boston. Her mom had run five Boston marathons and was there to spectate for her. And I asked her what she's doing this summer. And she is going to Tanzania to study. I said, how do we meet two people? I said, we're going to have to connect to you. I have the woman who I met. I have her, her name and her contact. And I can get in touch with her on Instagram. But I told her we'd have to connect her to our other Tanzania. I said, that is crazy that two people who have a connection to Tanzania in the same weekend, what are the chances? And I told her all about uh, her, 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 what she was doing in Tanzania with um, renewable energy, which was really fascinating. Um, so I thought that was really funny. So I just wanted to Yeah, that, that is way. super funny. And then we also met at our ShakeOut Run uh, Briar Rose's family. And Briar Rose is a 16-year-old runner who um, ran cross-country, uh, not All ran cross-country, cross country, <laughs> like cross country. Most, right, like how most 16-year-olds run cross-country. Oh, no, no. She ran a cross the country, and um, she and her parents were there at the shakeout run, and they are in Boston because she was running the post-race run with Dave McGilvery starting at 3 p.m. after the race is over. And we'll talk more about that. But meeting Briar Rose and her incredible family at our shakeout was, was truly amazing. Do you want to talk a little bit about Briar Rose's mom? Yeah. So her mom, Christy Louise Honeywell, um, is a hand cycle athlete. And she won the hand cycle, women's hand cycle division in 2010. And um, Briar Rose herself, has a very impressive marathon PR from when she was 14 years old of 3.05. This is a very um, athletically inclined, um, clearly gifted family. And not only that, but very sweet and very kind. And they were very excited about their opportunity. Um, Dave McGilvery had invited them to participate with him. Um, again, they had made this connection because uh, Briar Rose, just like Dave, had run across the country and he had reached out to her. They had connected that way. And so, yeah, they were um, part of Dave's 50th. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, um, Briar Rose cannot officially run the Boston Marathon. <laughs> Speaking of women who are not able to officially run the Boston Marathon, she cannot, she, you have to be 18 to register for the Boston Marathon. So that is why she got to run with Dave at three o'clock, an unofficial, her own, her own marathon, but she's only 16 yet. So um, they were great to talk to and see. And then we, we get to see them again later in the weekend, we can talk about that. But so that was just such a, um, you know, such a great group. Um, our friend, Adam Longo, uh, who's a, a local news celebrity here who we had coached to help achieve his BQ, uh, came out to see us, which was really nice. And um, just such a wide, like you said, a wide range of, but we had, um, you know, random people. It was very sweet at the end. We had this sweet woman come up and say, can I get a picture with you? I listened to your podcast. We had, you know, just people who had come up 
just just by just listening to the podcast who had never met us before. And then again, our runners that we have feel like we know, but that we had not, you know, not seen in a long time. Um, and, and it is, it's, it's so nice to be able to give a hug or run with the people that we feel like we know so well. And again, meet these other um, either podcast listeners or people we've connected with in different ways, um, be able to connect with them in person. So that, again, we were, you know, even though we were freezing cold as we were standing around after, we did not want to leave. That was really, we wanted to just hang out and, and talk to people more. But we had to get to our cryotherapy appointment, which has also become a little bit of a tradition of ours. We started that in October. And you remember this time to book us appointments. I think is it Cryomed Boston? Is that what it's? The yeah. Cryomed Boston, very, very friendly owner. He's awesome. He's a Boston um, marathon finisher. He had run in October. He was not running now. They're always so accommodating and so welcoming. And even though I was already freezing cold, <laughs> I did go do cryotherapy. I think it's a little bit of um, superstition for us now. Like, I don't know how much it helps, but it can't hurt. And it's just, you know, makes us feel like we're doing something to, to help with the preparation and, and recovery. Um, so we did that. Um, I know we went back to the hotel to then try to warm up. You then, you know, had some time with your family. Um, so I don't know if you want to talk about, you know, I know you went back to the, to the finish line area, um, while I was still at the hotel. Yeah, I walked back to the finish line area and there were some people on the stage speaking and I recognized one of them was Carrie Tollefson, who's an Olympian and a very popular podcaster. And she was, uh, just had a, was moderating a panel on marathon tips. And I turned to the woman next to me and I said, who are those folks on the panel? And she told me it was a, a few men, like top finishers. And then I looked at her as I was talking to her and I realized it was Erica Kemp, who's one of the top BAA athletes in the country and also does a lot of moderating of panels too. And we had a really nice conversation. She is really, so she's an amazing runner, but I think she has a future in broadcasting. She's super talented. So it was really fun to talk with her. And um, yeah, my family for the first time in years, uh, Darren, Ellen, Noah decided to come to Boston. It's still my was my kids spring break and um, they flew up for the night and stayed with my uncle. So they came into the city and we hung out and uh, Ella brought me some peeps and um, that's good carb loading, right? And it was great to see them. I was so excited to have them in Boston. It's been years since they were able to come and it was really special that they're here. So then you and I walked back to the finish line area and the finish line area is called Fan Fest. They developed this during 2021 because they wanted to keep a lot of the activities outside. And we were pleased to see that FanFest has kind of stuck because when the weather's nice, having an outdoor event um, with speakers, it just allows more people to attend. You don't need tickets. You stand around. Everyone can hear. It's decent acoustics. And it's just beautiful scenery. And it's a wonderful stage. And there's a lot more opportunities, I feel like, for people to hear the speakers that used to be in the expo. And it was crowded. And it was hard to hear. So I think it's a great change. And we went back at one o'clock and we saw the best panel. We took lots of pictures and that is the original, um, six of the original eight women were on the panel who ran Boston in 1972. They were the first official field. And of course, for those who've been listening to our podcast for quite some time, you know that we've had some of these women already on our podcast, including Sarah Mae Berman, Catherine Switzer, and most recently, Val Rogoszewski, who was gearing up to run the Boston Marathon the next day and was the only one on the panel actually running exactly 50 years later. And first of all, meeting Sarah Mae Berman and her husband, Larry, 
was They're a Hoot. Uh, that was the podcast we did with the couple where the husband and wife talked all about her running and how Larry really pushed her into running. And he's why she's successful. She really credits her husband to her tremendous success as an athlete. And they just do everything together. And they are as cute as the day is long. I mean, they couldn't have been more adorable. And Sarah May on that stage, she just took control of the mic. And Carrie Tolson was doing the panel with Erica Kemp. And all of the women were just correcting poor Carrie and Erica. Every time they tried to get sentence out, one of them would speak up and say, oh, no, that's not how it went. <laughs> it was so great. <laughs> My favorite part was when Carrie called Sarah May, Sarah. And Sarah May was like, no, no, Sarah May. Like, Sarah May. <laughs> it's great. And I just have to say, Sarah May and Larry have been married for over 66 years. And that, that to me, you can just see um, in their eyes and in their interactions, the mutual respect that they have for each other. And, you know, Larry was talking to us after saying, we do everything together. They exercise every day for 70 minutes together. They do everything together. And he said, you know what? It doesn't work for everybody, but it has worked for us. And that was great. And I thought another highlight as we're listening to this panel, and I mean, everything that was coming out of their mouths, we were just like, it like gave me the chills. It's like such you know, so reflective and such um, a lot of timeless wisdom. Um, I think something that struck me and what we've heard time and time again when we interview these women on our podcast is that there was an unspoken agreement that all eight would finish because they had something to prove. And, you know, Val, uh, no, was it uh, Sarah? That was the year Sarah May had the flu. I think it was, you know, there, everyone had a reason they might not be able to finish and they all finished. And, um, you know, at, at one point we realized we were standing right next to Val's daughters who ran the race with her on Monday. And so we got to talk to them about their mom and they are just the sweetest, you know, just like their mom, just such kind, kind people. And um, yeah, so it was just such a, you know, really a, a very um, remarkable at how, how far we've come in 50 years. 50 years isn't that long ago. All these women are still here and you know, healthy and well and able to talk about their experiences. It wasn't that long ago that, um, you know, things look very, very different in, in not just the Boston Marathon, but all, you know, through sports and through the world and in society. And um, to hear it straight from the mouths of the women that were there and, and almost like time hadn't passed. And I loved seeing their interactions together. They were all very protective of each other. They're all very um, supportive of each other. You know, they have a really unique bond. And we've heard about um, anecdotally through them that they have sleepovers and get togethers and they still, you know, socialize and they still keep in touch. And they've got a really, really special, unique bond. So that was really one of the big highlights um, for me of the weekend. And after they came off the stage, we had a chance to go give Val a hug and say hi to her and, you know, get to uh, see Sarah May. And um, that, that was, that was really neat. And it was fun to see too. They were really being treated by the BAA and by, um, you know, just by everybody as the celebrities that they, they really should get that celebrity treatment. So that's really, that was really neat. For sure. And there's one thing I just wanted to add, and that was all of the women there were giving a lot of props to Bobby Gibb. I, I noticed when we, um, put out on social media, the, the photos and some of the video of this event. So for those who haven't seen it yet, we put out on our Facebook page, a few videos of the event, because what the words of these women, it was just so incredible. We wanted to share it with everyone. And a few folks did ask us, well, um, why didn't they give Bobby Gibb credit? They totally did. One of the first senses out of Catherine Switzer's mouth was, and I really want everyone to know that before all of us, when we ran officially, there were several women 
who ran unofficially. And of course, Bobby Gibb preceded me in doing that and shared the story about how Bobby, who was also on our podcast, hid in the bushes and then ran. And Bobby was mentioned quite a bit during the panel. And I just wanted to mention that um, to make sure everyone knows she did get a lot of credit during that that talk. And Bobby was here over the weekend and she too had her own separate panel, but we just missed that. But we did get to see her at the end of the weekend and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah, so we, um, you know, we, again, were cold. It was cold that day. So we were kind of cold and getting a little chilled. So um, that's, I think, when we went back to the hotel and we were just like, we are done. We are just done for the day. We like put on our pajamas, we put on our new sweatshirts and we got in bed. And that's really, you know, I think something we all have to think about and remind ourselves of Boston weekend. And especially if you're new to Boston or you're going for the first time, there is so much to do. There is so ex much excitement in Boston. What's really neat is the whole city is totally invested in the marathon. It's all about the marathon. Um, and this weekend was also apparently Red Sox, you know, their home openers. <laughs> there was a lot going on with that too, but really it's all about the marathon. So it's very easy to get totally drained, possibly dehydrated, not, you know, well fueled. Um, so um, so speaking of fuel, why don't we talk a little bit too about our, our fueling? Because, you know, in the days leading up to the race, so Saturday and Sunday for us, really starting back you know, closer to Thursday, but Saturday and Sunday are really the key days to focus on nutrition. And I know you were being really good this year about, um, you know, <laughs> documenting, but really being conscious of the carbs you take in. Now, I eat a lot of carbs just as a general rule. So I feel like I kind of followed my normal um, my normal uh, routine. I will say on Friday night when I was there without you, I went to a really great place called Bo Loco. It's sort of like, a, you know, it's almost like a cava, but it's a, it's a Mexican food version of cava. So you make your own bowl. And I was able to get um, farro, you know, the green farro and some chicken and some corn and, you know, some different, um, you know, whatever they had added into it, um, which I felt like was a really good, good meal. So anyone ended up to Boston, I would put in a good word for Boloco, but talk about a little bit about, you know, kind of what, where your mind was in terms of your feeling and how you were staying conscious of it and staying on top of that. Yeah. So for those who um, maybe missed our last episode, I, I shared that I was planning on running Boston sort of as a fun run casually only because I'm, I was under trained for this race due to having COVID in January and just not quite recovering from it fully enough to really train in a meaningful way. So I decided I can only control what I control. And one thing I can control is making sure I am properly fueled because I anticipated I would feel even more drained toward the end of the race as a result of my training. So I really took to heart what uh, Kelsey, Amy Goldsmith, and um, Nancy Clark, and so many of the registered dietitians we work with say. And I really did. I, I really did it. I calculated exactly how many grams of carbs I would need three days before the race. And based on my weight in kilograms, I needed about 400 grams of carbs per day beginning on Friday. And it really wasn't hard to meet. But in order for me to do that, I wrote things down. Now, first of all, it's Passover. So don't judge. I just I, I suspended Passover while I carb loaded for the marathon and back on my Passover observation, but during the three days, I'm not. So no one judge me. Anyway, I um, bagels have 50 grams of carbs. So bagels, cliff bars, um, pasta, rice, sushi, Pop-Tarts, <laughs> bananas, dry fruit, and of course, candy. That was pretty much the staple of um, our diet, especially my diet, the days leading up to the marathon. 
for those listening who aren't familiar with this, it, it does. It sounds really gross, but guess what? It works. And, um, oh, and graham crackers. And I easily reached 400 grams of carbs. And that's because I wasn't eating during those days a ton of protein and very little fat. So it's kind of like the 80s diet or 90s diet. Remember that? When nobody ate. Snack nobody wells. Ate Snack wells. Snack wells. Yeah. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking so about. I was eating All the empty carbs. Yes. I was eating my college diet in Boston. Like cereal, Pop-Tarts, bagels. Right. But you know what? It works. I did not have any kind of stomach issues at all. And I drank a lot of electrolytes. I took um, salt tabs on Saturday, as did you. We knew it was going to be a little bit on the warmer side, not too warm on Sunday, but warm enough to, on Monday rather, but warm enough to justify taking salt tabs. I misspoke on Sunday. I took them. And um, yeah, so that's what I did for my fueling. And then of course you and I had a lovely sushi dinner in our room as we did in October. And folks, I know it sounds weird that we do sushi, but if you look at the the carbs for a, a generous roll of sushi, it's like some some rolls. If you have two rolls, it's like over a hundred grams of carbs. So um, simple, easy great. to digest, white yeah. rice, and I think actually also the soy sauce is really key for me because getting that sodium in, mm -hmm. um, and it's also light enough that it doesn't make you feel. So you know, obviously, you want to get it from a reputable place. You may want to get cooked sushi versus raw sushi if you're nervous about that. But knock on wood, it has worked for every race I've done for probably the last, I don't know, five or six years. It's been my, that's been my pre-race meal. And I just love our tradition of ordering the sushi and we're in our cozy pajamas and we sat in the room and we ate our sushi and we had our candy. Like that's our, that, that's kind of our thing. And, um, you know, lights were out relatively early. We had, um, we were, you know, we, the bus loading schedule was released uh, you know, obviously plenty of time before the race and the language in the bus loading schedule was um, very uh, reminiscent, and very similar to what had been prior to October. So prior to, you know, 2019 and before, which was you have, you know, all runners have a color bib based on their wave. So the first wave is red, the second wave is white, then it's uh, blue, then it's yellow, and then um, suggested loading times, which will get you to Hopkinton in time to not have too much time to sit at Athletes Village, but enough time to get ready and then get to the start line, depending on your start wave. So clearly you want to get the red bib runners who are starting the first wave there before the, um, you know, the, the bib, the yellow wave that starts last. So that was always the suggested pattern. And in the past, 19, 2019 and prior, it was just suggested and nobody was checking your color bibs when you got on the bus to make sure you were loading at the right time. It was, you know, kind of the honor system and also just kind of flowed very well anyway. Um, so, uh, we weren't, you know, we had originally thought this year that that was going to be back to that because the language said, here are the recommended loading times, but then really about a day or two before the race, we got another email that said, you know, they're going to, that indicated they'd be more strictly enforced. And that was the case in October, uh, with the rolling start, they actually were very strictly enforced where they would not actually let runners with a certain color bib even past a certain point to get to the buses before the time that was allowed. So, um, you know, we made sure our runners knew that because we wanted, didn't want people getting there super early and having to stand around and wait to board a bus. Um, so they were, they were stricter this time. I know they were checking when I got on bib colors to make sure we were in the colors that were being boarded. Um, you know, the, the bus loading process is, is extremely efficient. And I'll talk a little bit about this more when we talk about um, the recap that Dave McGillivray gave at the press conference on Tuesday. Um, but it's a very smooth process. They have the logistics down to a science. They've got a, you know, hundreds and hundreds of volunteers out. They've got traffic directors. They know exactly what's happening. Um, and our, you know, bus loaded 
uh, very smoothly, very quickly. I sat down next to um, a, a woman and, you know, we struck up a conversation. One, one of the favorite things about the buses for me and Athletes Village is the opportunity to meet other runners and find out about other runners. So as I was talking about earlier, I sat next to a very nice young woman. And when I say young woman, I mean a girl. She is um, lovely and uh, and it was eager as her first Boston Marathon. She's a sophomore at University of Colorado Boulder engineering major. And she had qualified for Boston in her first marathon, which was the Colorado Marathon, where she totally messed up strategy and she totally messed up everything, um, but she still managed to qualify. And her mom had run Boston five times and her mom and brother were in Boston to cheer her on. And she said, as she left in the morning, her mom was crying, um, had tears in her eyes because you know her daughter was running the race that she had run five times and she had always wanted for her daughter to run. And something else that was very interesting, she was telling me, she went to obviously high school in Colorado, and she uh, was on track and field and her track coach was Nell Rojas. So who was ended up being the 10th place uh, female finisher, the top American finisher on Monday. And it was very interesting. She told me that she told her runners, do not run a marathon until you're in your thirties. And I think that is actually really good advice. Um, you know, the marathon is very hard on your body. And I mean, for me, to hear a 19 year old girl who was going to do it. I thought, Ooh, that's, you know, that's a lot. But, um, she said to me, she acknowledged, she said, you know what? She told us don't run marathons till you're in your thirties. And that's when she said, you know, you usually peak in your thirties, which, you know, was both of our experiences. Uh, so she said, I'm going to do this once cause I'm, I qualified and I want to do it. She said, but then I'm going to back off and we can do short distances. And, um, um, and she was lovely and, um, she did make a rookie mistake, which I will use as an example for anyone listening, who's planning to go in the future go to the bathroom before you get on the buses. There are plenty of porta potties and they even have signs now, I noticed this year that said, it's a long ride, use the porta potties now. <laughs> so they actually warn you, I saw those signs. I had never seen them before. I don't know if they'd been up before. And she was kind of dying. And I don't know if I told you this, but um, you know, we're, we're going and we're all kind of chatting on the bus. No one's really paying attention. And all of a sudden this guy from the back runs up and goes, tells the bus driver, no, 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 you're going the wrong way. You took the wrong way on, on, you know, on, I think it was 495 or I, he said, you're going North. You need to be going South. So luckily we had a local on our bus who noticed we were going the wrong way before we got two out. And he directed, he stayed up in the front of the bus and he directed him back on course. We were probably detoured five or 10 minutes. Um, it did take us a little bit of a different way than I've ever gone into Hopkinton. So we ended up in a different coming from a different direction, but um, it, it all ended up fine. But that was a near that, you know, that happens every year. Unfortunately, there are usually a couple buses that get misdirected or, and, you know, we were all saying like, not to, at the fault of the bus driver at all, but like, you've got one job, like, you know, let's give the bus driver some like, you know, foolproof directions to how, you know, where they're going and how to get there. So um, that was a little bit of a like nervous moment. And my seatmate was like, I really, really, really have to pee. And she's like, maybe if he stops, I'll get off and go in the bushes on the side. She was really dying. We all let her off at the end. We let her get off first to go run as fast as she could to the porta potty. So uh, pro tip before you get on those buses, it is a long ride. Um, it took us about an hour and 15 minutes to get there. It normally takes about an hour to get there. So it's, it's a long ride. So, and everyone's, you know, fueling and they're, they're hydrating and they usually have to pee. So, uh, you know, definitely uh, take that as a lesson. And, um, you know, I arrived in Athletes Village, uh, you know, typically when, so in Athletes Village, the way it's laid out, there's two big um, kind of areas of Athletes Village. You walk straight into Athletes Village, you can either go to the right or sort of straight to the left. And we typically go to the right where most of um, people are hanging out, big tents are located, uh, the grass field, the baseball 
kind of a baseball diamond um, to the to the left. So that's to the right. To the left is actually a big blacktop area that I haven't really I've been, I haven't gone on that side before. But this time I thought, you know, let me go see what it looks like over there because I knew the porta potty lines on the right side looked already enormously long. So I went over to the left side onto the blacktop, and the lines were very short. So um, another little tip that you know, Athletes Village is very large and everyone tends to flow in and flow to the right where everybody, that's just kind of the wave of people going. If you keep going straight and you go towards the left behind the school where the blacktop is, uh, the lines were much shorter there and that was consistent throughout the morning for me. So tell me about your trip. You forgot the very important fact that we oh. wore um, unicorn pajamas to yep. get on the buses and wait in Hopkinton, which brilliant, brilliant idea, Lisa, that you came up with in for our 2020 race that never happened. And we've held on to these guys. Footy pajamas, like they're like footy pajamas. Like if you yeah. can get one, it's like a built-in blanket. So it's like, you've got it on you. It's a, uh, just buy a really big size. And so it's like a, it's like a blanket that you can wear to the start. That was great. You're right. That was great. And you know, we also forgot, we didn't talk about our, our breakfast in the morning when we woke up, you know, so if we back up a little, a little bit, I'll just talk briefly, you know, about, about breakfast in the morning. And, um, you know, I did have uh, my typical oatmeal when I woke up and I brought Cliff Bars on the bus with me to have um, on the way. So that was you know pretty, pretty standard for me. Um, so anyway, talk a little bit about your morning. Yeah, the, we were bundled up, absolutely warm enough. And fortunately, our hotel this year was close enough to the finish line that we made the executive decision to not check a bag. And that was really nice to not have to worry about sort of packing two bags, one for the end of the race, one the bag, of course, that you're allowed to bring with you to Hopkinton containing some food. And because for the first time ever, we decided to extend our trip to Boston and not go home Monday night, instead stay till Tuesday morning, we had the luxury of doing that. And I think we both appreciated that tremendously. So yeah, we really should say checking a bag you, you actually have to do um, when you go to the buses. So that would have been an extra trip for us. I mean, we walked basically straight to the buses, but we would have kind of backtracked a little bit, go to the, um, the, the well, actually, all the buses were actually right outside of our hotel. So it wouldn't have been too much of a backtrack, but right, to drop a bag there was redundant for us because we get back to the hotel faster than we retrieve our bag probably from the bag buses. But that's what we do now since 2013. Um, prior to 2013, you actually would check your bag in Hopkinton. So you could bring everything you needed uh, to Hopkinton and you check it and they would transport it back to the finish. So you could bring it with you. Now you write, like you mentioned, you bring a small bag of disposables. So it's your food, anything you're going to either carry with you on the race or throw away in Hopkinton, you bring that on the bus. They give you a gallon size, uh, plastic bag. And then like you mentioned, there's a bigger bag that you can pack. We recommend packing like a dry change of clothes some slide on shoes or something, anything you're going to want right after you finish to keep you warm. Um, but if your hotel is close enough, you really don't need that. So yeah, that was a nice um, that we got to skip that this time. Absolutely. And like you, I my oatmeal, standard oatmeal with 60 grams of carbs and uh, brought with me to Hopkinton a banana and a half a bagel and a Cliff Bar. I didn't have all of it, but I munched on, you know, all of it throughout the morning after finishing the oatmeal and a little bit of coffee. And so, yeah, you and I walked to the Boston Common together because you're in wave two and I'm in wave three, you boarded the bus. And then I very um, easily found some of my MCRRC friends, my Montgomery County Roadrunners friends. And we got online to get on our bus about 20 minutes after you, Lisa. And um, it was such a nice treat to be able to sit on the bus with one of our runners and one of 
our past podcast guest, Eric Melby. He and I sat together and it just really calmed my nerves. I've been running with Eric since 2010. So it's really, he's an old running friend and, and we always run in Boston at the same time. And it just was such a treat to sit with him. So what happened with me, and I, I don't know if you experienced this as well, Lisa, was typically when I get to Hopkinton, it's like, it's a nice time to sort of sit down, collect yourself, breathe, enjoy some time with friends and leisurely use the bathroom. And then once your wave is called, you go. This year, because the buses were also in waves and they were pretty strict about it, I think I had maybe 30, 40 minutes in Hopkinton, which isn't really a lot of time. And I felt like it was a little bit rushed. It wasn't leisurely. I felt the energy around me. It was a lot of people also feeling like, oh gosh, the bathrooms are pretty crowded already. And I don't have an hour and a half like I usually do. So I think um, some good advice, and we've said this before in our podcast, but it's worth repeating, is because the time in Hopkinton is definitely more limited than in past years, do not stop anywhere. Go right from the bus and get in line for the bathroom because you don't want to be in a situation where you're in line for the bathroom when your wave is called to start walking into Hopkinton. So um, pretty much that was it. Took some pictures and suddenly we found ourselves walking to Hopkinton. And um, the walk to Hopkinton from the villages is 0.7 miles. The walk from our hotel to the Boston Common to get on the bus was at least a half mile. So easily before the race even started, I think I had walked over two miles. Definitely you too. And we talked about this after our marathon. I'm getting out of order, but the number of steps we had for Monday was well over 50,000 steps, which is insane. So anyway, um, yeah, going to Hopkinton, going to the start line, as always, there are a ton of porta potties right by the start line. That was no exception this year. So that was great to have that option. And it was rushed though, Lisa. Like for me, I walked briskly in, into Hopkinton. I walked with our lovely runner client, Holly Witzak, and it was great to be with her. And we were casually walking and all of a sudden I looked at my watch and I was like, oh my gosh, it's already, oh, it's already 1040. And my wave of course went off at 1050, yours went off at 1025. And um, that was it. I mean, I barely had enough time to jump in my corral. And I found immediately when I jumped in my corral, I found um, Rabbi Lori Rice, who's one of our runners and also a past podcast guest. And she, she and I knew we were in the same corral and we were saying that we would start out together. So I was really excited that I was able to find her in the start right away. And that was it, gun went off and we were off. Yeah, I had the same experience. I think I thought it was because your bus was a little bit delayed. I was getting a little bit nervous as we got there. And just like you suggested, I went straight to a porta potty line and it was a short line. So I got out quickly. I will say one thing I was going to mention to you. You may have found the same thing. Love our unicorn onesies until it's time to go into the porta potties. So every time I go to the porta potty, I have to take the whole onesie off before I even went in. Like I take it off and leave it outside the porta potty and then come out and have to put it all back on. So I don't know about you, but it was, I was just worried that that unicorn head was going to go in the porta potty. Um, so, I totally Anyways, forgot so I was, about that, but you're right. 
<laughs> yeah, I was like, every time I'm like, oh, shit, I'm going to take this whole thing off. Uh, what was really fun for me, just a side story, is that the first time I got in line for porta potties in the line next to me was one of our runners who had done our Boston group program last year, Carter Ficklin, and he was standing right there. So I got to catch up with him and he seemed to be doing really well. So, um, but we had a short porta potty line, so it wasn't too bad. So I got out, put my unicorn onesie back on, went to walk over to the other side of the uh, Athletes Village where our um, MCRC friends are usually located. And I thought where you might be, I couldn't find anybody this year. So I walked back to the other side to the, I saw the lines for the porta potties on that side, which were tremendously longer. So I walked back to the other side, got back in line, you the porta potty again, walked back to the other side to see if you were there, you weren't there. And by then they were, that was when they were calling my wave. So it was really, like you said, it was really um, all I had time to do was go to the porta potty twice and walk over, you know, to the other side once. And now I didn't sit down ever. I didn't like hang out anywhere. Um, luckily the weather was nice. It was sunny. Um, I was worried after our Sunday, how cold it was. The temperatures were similar and I was worried it was gonna be so cold, but this was, um, you know, I had a big debate on Sunday night. Do I wear, um, I had a long sleeve Lululemon shirt and I had a tank, a, a, a Lululemon tank that I was going to wear um, with um, arm warmers. And I had a big debate and I was so cold on Sunday. That I said, I'm just gonna wear the long sleeves. I went with the long sleeves and shorts because I love my shorts that have the pockets on the sides. Um, so I said, I'll wear the shorts, but I'm going to wear long sleeves. So, you know, I had on a um, throwaway jacket and I had on the, the onesie and I was sweating by the time I'd walked down to Hopkinton. So I actually took off the jacket and donated it, put it in one of the donate bags early, kept my onesie on. Um, but I was got down to the start line and same thing. I thought I'm going to get one more porta potty, potty line. I mean, that was my morning. I was in like three porta potty lines. That was all I had time, you know, three times through the porta potty line. So I went into the line, the, the, the porta potties near the start that are in the CVS parking lot, typically very short lines also. So I had a quick short line for that. Um, and as I was standing in that line for the porta potty, I was sweating. And I had a sudden kind of moment of panic of, I'm going to be too warm in these long sleeves. And we had talked about this before, um, Cherry Blossom 10 miler two weeks before it was exactly the same temperature. And I had worn long sleeves and I thought I was overheating and I swore I wouldn't do it again, but I thought I was going to be cold. And I was having the same thing like, oh no, here we go. And I did not want to get rid of my Lululemon long sleeve shirt. I had just gotten it. I was brand new. And I thought, oh, this is like, I don't want to donate it, but I said, I'm going to just, I'm going to get too hot, overheated. So I went over the side. I took my bib off of my long sleeve shirt. I took my long sleeve shirt off. I had the kind of long, longer um, sports bra on underneath that I had worn lot for last year's race underneath it. So I pinned my bib back on that. And I took my Lululemon shirt with me to the start corrals because I knew that one of our runners that we've coached before, Colleen Sousa, who is a tireless volunteer for, for the BAA, well, she uh, is with a running local running club and they volunteer for the Boston Marathon every year at the start line. She had told me she would come find me in my corral. So I made my way to my corral. I knew I would see Colleen and I knew she's about my size. And I said, I want to at least give her this shirt so she can, somebody can put it to good use and I can gift it to somebody who will, who will appreciate it. So I passed along my, my ear warmer and my shirt to Colleen, which was so nice to have her come find me and give me a big hug in the corral. It gave me a great boost before we get started, but it was a last minute costume, you know, last minute costume change to like, oh no. And it was just really surprising to me that, you know, it was really in the forties, but the sun was out and it wasn't windy at that point. And it was, it was warm. I kept on my um, run mitts gloves with hand warmers in them because I knew as long as my hands were warm, I would not get cold. So I kept those on thinking that if I had to, if those got really too hot and annoying, I could toss them, but I didn't want one to, cause those are my favorite, you know, one of my favorite running gear that I do not, but the great thing about run mitts gloves, you can fold them over and take the top part off. 
So I did that immediately. And I actually pretty quickly also took out the hand warmers because that was just too warm. So I ended up wearing those around my wrist the entire, the entire race, but that was a, a last minute change. But like you said, it came really quickly. Like by the time I got to my corral, I think we had, you know, five minutes before the gun went off and I saw Colleen gave her a hug um, and, and we were off. So it, it did feel like a much more compact um, time in Athletes Village, I thought was actually good. I never really liked hanging out in Athletes Village like an hour, an hour and a half beforehand. It, it gets, um, it's hard to sit on the ground and it can be, you get stiff and you get a little nervous and a lot of nervous energy then. So I kind of like that it, smooth, it, it, it flowed smoothly, but I will say, you know, start gun goes off and um, I had forgotten what it was like to be in a crowded Boston Star Corral and they are crowded and they are usually, you know, everyone is probably gonna run about the same pace as you. So for, I paid attention this time because people often ask us, when does it open up? And I would say by about mile one and a half, I at least felt like I wasn't at risk of tripping over people, but it took a good mile or so before I felt like I wasn't, you know, dodging or, or afraid I was going to you know, bump into somebody in front of me or somebody might kick me by, by mistake or trip me. It, it's crowded. And we didn't have that in October. We had the rolling start where you just went and nobody was around, you know, you had nice open space. So Boston Corral starts are very, um, can be very disconcerting and um, you can also get carried out too fast. That's the other thing. I, I didn't, my first mile was actually a little bit slower because it was so crowded um, and that's okay because it's easy to go out too fast with all the excitement. I felt like I was dressed pretty well for the race. I wore a short sleeve top that was lightweight and my brand new run farther and faster arm warmers, which I wore for maybe the first mile and pushed them down. Like you, I had on run mitts gloves that I just put on my wrist and they ended up being sort of like sweatbands. <laughs> I used them to wipe the sweat off my head throughout the race or wipe my nose a little bit, not to be gross, but um, yeah, they were actually functional for that. And uh, I wore a crown this year. I went back to my OG look. I've worn a tiara in past years and it always gets a lot of good cheers. And I like to wear something on the course that gets people to yell because I mean, I really appreciate the motivation and it helps. And then I also ordered off of Etsy uh, last week, a bib that was blue and yellow with my name on it that I put right under my number. And that was awesome because I just really felt like, especially this year, knowing it was going to be a challenging race for me. And I don't mean to sound like a Debbie Downer at all. I, I don't, I'm, I'm not saying this in a way like it's going to be a bad race. I'm saying I had to meet myself where I was this year. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. But I just figured if I can look cute and just have on a fun outfit, then at the very least, that will motivate me. And, and you know, in the fall, I dressed as RBG and that was so much fun. So this spring, I decided I'd go back to my original tiara, which is what I've worn for many Bostons, just like Boston is back in April. So that being said, my first mile, I, I intended on running with Lori, who I just talked about as um, one of our amazing clients and um, who incidentally raised $40,000 for the Heather Abbott Foundation. So that a person out there that would like a prosthetic blade is able to wear one or participate in activities that they otherwise wouldn't be able to because they can't afford it. So props to Lori. And of course, we had Heather Abbott on our podcast a few years ago to talk about her foundation. So I was really excited to run with Lori. Unfortunately, I lost Lori like within probably one minute. It just was so crowded and I couldn't get my pace regulated. I was kind of like trying to keep myself small and not weave in and out of people. 
and I really wasn't looking as carefully at my watch as I was focusing on my turnover to make sure that I wasn't breaking, kind of making sure that my form was as perfect as can be going down that first steep hill. And all of a sudden I look around and I can't find Lori. I didn't know if she was ahead of me or behind me. It turned out Lori started out slower than I did, but she ended up, and I'm so happy about this, at some point passing me. And she had a fantastic negative split Boston, which is really, really hard to do. So huge props to Lori. I'm so sad that I wasn't able to run with her, at least at the start, but I think it worked out for the best because she ran the right ways for her and I ran the right race for me. But in any case, just like you, I was taking note of how long it takes the crowd to sort of spread out. And it's so funny, Lisa, I don't know if you feel this way, but now when I'm running, because we do these podcasts and because we do so much coaching, I really think a lot about, oh, I want to remember this for the podcast, or I want to remember this little tidbit. And I feel like we're, you know, we almost do like this like boots on the ground reconnaissance work every time we run Boston, because we pick something else up that we want to share with our listeners and with our runners. So I will say like, it is so critical to really stay in the same place. If you can let the people weave around you, but you just stay put and keep your turnover high and make sure you're not breaking and just really hunker down and focus on your form because that first few, those first few miles are steep the downhill. There is some uphills we've talked about before, but the downhill is significant. And the worst thing we can all do is just go out there and just blow it up because we will feel it by like mile seven or eight. So um, I also- You know what I did for the first mile this time? I stayed on the tangent line. That was my thing to stay on the line. Let people people go around me, let just stay on the tangent line. A couple of times I had to get off when I had somebody who was really just like in front of me that was just, you know, slowed down significantly or whatever, or a crowd of people. But for the most part, I thought, and and the tangent line is marked the first mile and the last mile of the course. So that first mile, I said, you know what, it's going to stay right here. That kind of kept me just like you said, from, you know, kind of weaving too much. And the, you know, the tendency is for panic to set in of like, Oh no, I can't go fast enough. There's too many people. Don't worry. You got, you know, another 25 miles to go faster. So um, use that time to relax, breathe. I, I did the same thing you did. I kind of checked in with myself. I said, okay, core engaged, high turnover, relaxed, like all of the things, glutes engaged. I kept thinking like, squeeze your butt, squeeze your butt, like engage your glutes. Um, you know, all of that. I was really conscious of that um, this time. And I really did a lot of that in the first mile for sure. Can you explain what the tangent line is? Yep. So the tangent line is the shortest distance from point A to point B, which is the 26.2 miles. It's how the course is measured. The course is measured on tangents. So, um, you know, if you're looking, if you're looking kind of at a a curved part of the course, it's sort of from one curve to the next. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So instead of following kind of the curves of the road, if you take one one curve to the next, a straight line. Um, And so again, um, not all races have that. Many races do not actually, but some of the bigger major races do have that tangent line marked for part, at least part of the course. And so that is how the course is measured. And so to avoid adding extra miles. Now I did look, I hadn't looked until today. I hadn't even thought about it, but I did 26.38 miles. So I was about 0.18 over, which I think is actually pretty good. It's actually great. I think that is really great um, because think about it. Even when you do your best to run the tangents, you have to veer left or right every mile to grab your your fluids. So you can't avoid it. So I think 26.38 is is pretty darn great. So yeah, yeah that was good. So and you know, and the, the wonderful thing about Boston is um, there's always something to entertain you on the course. <laughs> and Dave McGilvery actually talked about this 
in his uh, in the press conference on on Tuesday uh, that you know the entertainment along the course has really um, upped its game throughout the years. And you know, I just remember all of the different. There were bands. There were um, there were you know. There's always the kids on trampolines at one point. There's uh, row, people doing rowing, rowing machines. There's um, you know, there are funny signs. There are, you know, obviously as you get closer to the city, college students like they're they're in most places now. There are some quiet spots along the way, um, but for the most part, there's something to entertain you. There's something to motivate you. There's something to give you a push. Um, I was at one point, and they were. I, I'm not gonna be able to sing the song, but there was a um, the hands go up, and they stay. And they what is that, that song? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and they say whatever. And the whole crowd that was running near me, and everybody on the sideline was every time, and their hands go up. Everyone put their hands up, and it was like gave me the chills because it was just like everybody was doing it. It was so cool. Um, so there's so many things along the way, and. I think it's so important to take them in. And I saw some runners with earbuds in who were just kind of, they're doing their own thing. And that's, you know, if that's what you need to do, then that's great. But there is so much to take in on this course that it is like, it is just, you know, it's so funny. I, um, I ran into along the course, one of our MCRC um, racing team teammates, Erica Singleton, and we were almost at 20 K. And I remember running with her a little bit and I said, Oh, there's a 20 K sign up there. And I, I didn't even realize we were in Wellesley. Like all of a sudden we were in Wellesley. I'm like, oh, and we're in Wellesley. Like, how did that happen? So Wellesley is like almost the halfway point. So I, I don't even know how I got there. Like it was so, uh, you know, so, so quick. And it's just because there's so much along the course that, that um, can entertain you and can motivate you. And, you know, I think that really helps break up the course, but I, I, I was definitely reminded this year of how important it is to be, smart on those downhills and to relax and to pay attention to your form. And not only that, to pay, be on top of your hydration and your nutrition. And I was diligent every 30 minutes pulling a Morton out of my shorts, taking it. And right after it, I would take two of my salt stick fast chews. And then next, you know, as soon as it hit one hour, I did exactly the same thing. And I was just very diligent about it. I was taking water at every water station after I think the second one, I did not take, I think for the first two, but after that, everyone, and even if you can just get a swish of water, which is like an ounce or two, that's okay. Cause you know, you've got another one coming up in another seven, eight, nine, whatever it is minutes, you've got another water station coming up. So you really only need a couple ounces. So I would grab a cup. Um, I was always staying on the left side this time, which was interesting to me. I went by all the left. I felt like the left water stops are a little less crowded because I think a lot of people are right-handed. So they tend to go towards the right. So the left uh, on the Boston course will have water and Gatorade first and then water second on your right-hand side. And then shortly thereafter, uh, Gatorade and water on your left-hand side. So you can stay to either side of the road. You don't have, if you don't get to the right, it's not like you're gonna miss it. So I would just kind of stay left and take my water and my hydration um, you know, from, from, those, from those stations. So you know, before I knew it, we were already through Wellesley and you know, that that's halfway through. And so my mind, I was thinking about this also, like you were saying, like kind of reconnaissance and advice for future runners that, that we coach, you know, I, in my mind, I break up the race, um, sort of, you know, the first, again, the first, you know, I, at first I was doing like 5k and 10k kind of looking forward to those points in the course. And then it went by so fast that I was already at 20k. And then once I get to, you know, the half, then I start thinking about mile 16. And then once you get to mile 16, your countdown is low is less than 10 miles. You got less than 10 miles to go. So I kind of thought about that. And then once I got to 16, I thought, okay, now we're going to start to count. And we'll get to the hills. We're going to count the hills. So it's four, four hills. I noticed this time, you know, yeah, and I've done this course. This was my 
18th time on the course. Um, and I noticed this time that there's a really long downhill stretch in between the second of the four hills in Newton and the third. And so that was a really nice time to recover, catch my breath, you know, recheck my form, feel, kind of get a sense of how I felt, um, make sure I was hydrated, make sure I had my nutrition. Um, so that's sort of how I broke it down in my head was that kind of, um, yeah, somehow I got to the halfway point. So I think I was looking at like 5k, 10k, and then I got to the halfway and then it was, you know, get to 13 and then it was 16 because then it's going to be less than 10 miles. And then it was the hills counting the hills. And then you're at 21 and then you've got five miles to go. So it just seemed to be a very easy way to break it down in my head. Now, by no means are those last five miles, like, you know, easy, if, especially if you push too hard the first 21. But, um, you know, I felt good once I got, I, I was really conscious of, um, uh, like, you know, uh, Lori had said after her race that her mantra in her head on the hills, we had talked about this with our runners on our group call before the race was um, going up hills, downshift. So you think about a bike, you know, I, I ride, I'm a cyclist too. And I think about shifting into a smaller gear or an easier gear where your your wheels are spinning, your, your pedals are spinning faster, even though you're working less, you're putting out less power. So it's the same idea on the hill. So I would tell myself that like downshift, like keep your wheels, you know, keep your RPM up, keep your pedals be turning over quickly, but don't put out the power, just keep them. And, and that really got me up. You know, I felt like I was strong up the hills. I felt like once I got to the top, I could pick it up again. I was really good at getting my pace. My, my, my pace on the hills was not, you know, it dropped at least, you know, 20, 30 seconds per mile on the hills, but then I would get back to where I was or very close um, after the hills. So I, I felt really good. And I was, again, staying on top of my nutrition. I was at one, one hour, one thirty, two hours, two thirty, And I will say my decision at three hours, I thought, you know, I knew as I was on target to be somewhere around 320. And in my mind, I thought I only have 20 minutes. I don't need more, more nutrition. And I frankly was kind of sick of taking nutrition. And I thought I only have 20 minutes. I'm fine. I will tell you the only crash I felt in the whole race was the last two miles. And you can look at my, my, my splits and you can see the last two, I definitely slowed down and I could feel it. And those last two miles felt like a really long too much. I kept thinking in my head, well, if I can hold even eight, that'll be 16 minutes. Like that's not that long. And then I kept thinking 16 minutes, are a really long time when I feel like this. So I think in retrospect, I should have taken nutrition at three hours, even though it was only 20 minutes away. I think that taking that um, would have given me that last little boost to help me feel strong through the end. And I, I felt okay, but I, I definitely felt that drop. Like there was a distinct drop in my energy. Uh, the last two miles when I feel like I should have more energy because the crowds are picking up and, you know, it's now flat to slightly rolling. Um, uh, and so, you know, in retrospect, I would have taken that last nutrition, but you know, that's still, again, I've talked about this before, but that right on Hereford, the left on Boylston, that is just, um, and I will mention, because I know one of our runners mentioned that they weren't expecting it, but that right, when you take the right on Hereford, there is a little uphill, it's short and it's not anything steep, but there's a little uphill. And I guess at that point in the race, it can feel really, um, it can feel, it can feel hard. So little uphill. And then you take the left on Boylston and, and it does feel like a long way from, from that left on Boylston to the finish. Like, it's like, when am I going to get to it? When am I going to get to it? But that, that feeling, that celebration will never, ever get all. I remember it from the first year I did it. I remember it from every year I've done it, that feeling of that euphoria of I made it. And the crowd is now just going to like, just the cheers. It's like, you really feel like this push. And so, you know, I, I had seen, 
I, I, I noticed that I would probably be able to break 320. And then it was like, just cut it out to be, then I really was like, if I get and pass that finish line and I'm like 320.01, I'm going to be really disappointed in myself, not disappointed, but I'm going to be frustrated that I didn't push that extra one second. Like, you know, I've got, I can push one second now. So um, I really just, um, I was much more focused last year in October when we did it, I kind of celebrated down that finish. I didn't really, you know, care so much about my time. And I was like, I'm, I was playing up, up the crowd and I was like putting my hands in the, my ear of like, let me hear you scream. And like, I was having so much fun during that stretch. Uh, this year I was like, no, 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 you're going to push because if you finish in 320.01, you're going to say I could have gotten under 320. So I, fit, I, I crossed, I had started my watch and I do this a lot because I don't want to worry about pushing it right when I get to the start line. When I'm about 10 feet from the start line, I push my watch. So I always kind of forget too, at the end of the race that I got a few seconds. Like I'm not, you know, if I watch a swimming 320, I may still be 319.50. But so I, I saw that I was going to do that and I um, crossed the finish line and um, my time ended up being 319.22 or 21, something like that. Um, so, you know, it felt really good to get back um, in the three teens, which is where, you know, I, I have been for a while and where I felt like I could be. Um, I wasn't sure going into it, how it was going to turn out. You know, we never know. You never know going out on that course, what's going to happen. Anything can happen. Anything can happen in a marathon. And we've seen it with story through stories. We've seen it with our runners. You know, you can go into it well-trained thinking you're going to have the greatest day in the, in the world. And it's a long, it's 26.2 miles. You're out there. You know, most of us are out there for three hours, four hours, five hours. So much can happen. So you just don't know. And until you cross that finish line, when you cross it and you know that you did it, your time's in the books, like it's done, you finished. I still cry when I cross the finish line every single year that I cross that finish line. And just with so much gratitude for being able to be back there at the finish line, having made it there, having qualified, having gotten through the race healthy, just being at that finish line and that experience. And I also had a little sigh of relief because they announced my name as I came through. And you know, if you announce, they announced your name that you're bib registered because somebody's announcing it from somewhere where the bibs are registering. And I'm always like, phew, I get kind of like a bit registered. So that was my race. I want to hear you know, more about your race. I mean, you forgot to mention one thing. You predicted that you called race. it that you what that you yeah, of course. I was gonna say, like you do this every year and you did it in 2019, same thing. You kind of have a prediction for where I'm gonna finish. And I'm always like, I don't know, you know, I'm not sure. And you are always right. And maybe it's because it puts it in my head. I don't know. Maybe it's like I get, you know, get the confidence that that's what and you had predicted, what'd you say, 318 to 322, right? I think is what you said. 318 to 320. No, you said actually 318 to 325, you said, because I thought I was going to be closer to three. I thought, yeah, she's right, but I'll be closer to 325, I thought. So I, I was closer to the other end. So you you did you good, did a good job. Thank you. Um, great race, Lisa. Super proud of you. And what I'm most impressed with with your race this year is, based on what you described, I think you ran a really even split race. I don't think you had much pretty even. It was not not super even. My first half was 136. So it wasn't, it was about no, six that's or great. seven. Because yeah, it was a little bit off. You know what though? Usually with Boston, a lot of folks, most, and I think you and I both have done this too. It's about a 10 minute addition. Exactly. I was going to say, usually what I do is double yeah. my, the time I go through that half and add 10. And I did that yeah. when I went through the half, I thought, okay, 136, I'll probably be done around 322. I was yeah. guessing that I was going to be 322 because that's double plus 10 minutes. So that is generally my rule is that if I can do that, I've had a pretty good race for, for Boston. So it was a little faster than that. I was probably, you know, I was, I wasn't, I think it was seven minutes, you know, second half I, I gave up. So, um, so it's about, you know, 30 seconds per mile over the course of that. So 
for Boston, that's pretty good. But I gotta tell you, our our friend Lori, who did a negative split on on Boston course, that huge props because that is very very hard. Oh, for sure. I mean, super super hard. So I was really really impressed with that, and frankly, so impressed with our runners just crushed it. I mean, really. And I know a lot of it is weather, and that's something to remember is that, you know, we're all at the mercy in any marathon, but particularly Boston, we're at the mercy of the weather. So no matter how perfect your training or execution is, if the weather's shitty, it's really hard to not be able to do the race that you deserve. And you know the, the phrase, the marathon owes you nothing. Well, Boston really owes you nothing. And this year, it was truly perfect, perfect running weather. I think the last time we had weather this this great was in 2011. I think that was the last time. That might've been the year we had a little bit of a tailwind too. I can't remember, but yeah, we usually have, you know, the hot year, the rainy year, the torrential downpour year, the nor'easter year. Um, we, the last few years we've done it have been a little warm for most people. I've loved it, but like 2019 was warm. 2017 was warm. Those were like a little bit warmer, like in the 50s, 60s type of weather and, you know, nice, nice warm weather that I liked, but you know, there's always something with the weather and that's something Dave McGilvery said at the press conference. Also, he said, our nemesis is always the weather. That's the one thing that's timeless. Like that's never, they're always worried about the weather. It's not, you know, everything else they can work around, they can plan around, but the weather is always the wild card. And uh, you know, we got pretty, pretty perfect this year. So this may be the perfect weather Boston year. It was a little bit, I felt, and I said, I know you said you didn't feel it. I felt a pretty strong headwind. Um, I'd say after about noon, um, and I was ducking behind people and trying to um, trying to draft a lot of the second half of the race. So I definitely felt that um, towards the end, particularly. Yeah, I didn't feel it, but you know what? It, it might have just been. I started um, what about right, uh, twenty minutes, twenty five minutes, twenty five minutes, yeah, minutes after you. So maybe when the headwind hit me, it just wasn't something that I noticed because of where I was on the course. I mean, if yeah. you're at mile. Um, 16, you're going to feel that headwind a lot or crosswind more than if you're at mile 11. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It just kind of depends right. where you are on the course. Right. As you so, get closer to Boston, you feel the headwind more. Yes, exactly. So, um, yeah, I mean, for me, I, I had a, I had a good race for where I am. So I'm, I'm proud of what I did. It was my slowest Boston and frankly, my slowest marathon in years however my goal with this race and I don't mean to sound dramatic was I didn't want to end up feeling like I needed to stop at a medical tent and I I didn't want Darren and my kids were going to be at mile six and a half 13 and 20 I didn't want them to see me um in any kind of bad shape and and the reason for this and just a little background is that I don't mean to like qualify myself and I'm not making excuses, but it's just the reality. I was really fighting this entire training cycle. The reality that I'm still not hundred percent from um, when I was sick with COVID in January. And I just had a really nasty cold. I'm vaccinated and boosted, but it kept, it was like the kind of cold where I was in bed for a week. And then when I tried to get going and get running again, I just, I just couldn't get any kind of speed. My legs felt really heavy. I was forcing it. So then I took another week off and I kept having to like dip my toe in, dip my toe out. And then by the time I, I got myself together, um, I talked with you and I talked with some other folks and I made the 
decision to, and I know I've talked about it on the podcast too, to just not do any speed work this um, training cycle and to really just run easy mileage and do the mileage. So I controlled what I could control and that was doing some strength training. I did a um, twice a week, I did some really meaningful full body strength training and Lauren Bernard helped me out with that. And then um, really just keeping my easy runs easy. I did one race, which I talked about on the podcast and that was the um, rest in 10 miler, which went very average, not terrible, not great. Um, my heart rate was was higher than what it normally would be for a race like that, which led me to really recognize that I wasn't where I normally would be at this point. And then I was supposed to run cherry blossom and I got another cold. So it's been a, a tough training cycle in that regard. But at the same time, I'm not injured. I'm not dealing with any sort of big event. And so to that end, I felt comfortable running this. I just knew I'd have to run it easy. So we talked about this in our last episode that I was going to fun run it. And a fun run to me, it doesn't mean I wouldn't be working. A marathon's hard no matter what pace you run it. But I knew I had to run it at a pace where I felt like my effort was easy enough that I could talk. I don't mean like super easy LSD conversational pace, but a pace during which I could talk and feel like I was calm. And so I wasn't sure if that pace would be, you know, 8.30, 8.45 or somewhere in between. And that's pretty much what it ended up being. And the reason I kind of figured that's what it would be is because my long runs and my easy runs right now to keep my heart rate low have basically been in the high nines and the low tens for most of this training cycle, which is not like me, but it's just where I am. And so working backwards, if that's what my easy pace feels like consistently, then um, trying to run a marathon pace about a minute faster and even a minute and a half faster is, is, was going to be a tough effort for me. So um, running 8.30 to 8.45, which um, when I'm fit is typically my easy pace. Um, it, was a, it was a little bit hard in my head, but once I figured out that's what I needed to do, I embraced it. So by the time I got to the start line, I felt very confident with my plan and I felt comfortable with it and actually excited because I felt like if I can run a race where I feel good the whole time and I get to see my family and I don't have pain from some sort of, you know, event, how lucky am I? So that was the attitude I had. And sure enough, the first half of the race, I was very consistently in the 830 to 835 range. Um, once I hit Newton, I slowed down by about 30 seconds per mile, except for that big downhill, picked it back up again. And then once I hit the city of Boston, I felt good. Um, and I ran about 840 to 845 pace. So my average pace was about 850, including the hills. And I finished in 352. So again, my slowest marathon, but I still requalified because I'm turning 50 and I didn't need a qualifier because I fortunately had qualified in 2021. Um, and you ran a steady race. You ran a pretty yeah. steady race. So that's, you know, that's, I think that's always a victory of Boston is to be able to finish strong. And you did. I did. And then, you know, it is, it is where I am right now. And I need, I needed to accept that, that I can continue to run and improve. And look, you know, we had uh, Dr. Kim, a sports cardiologist on a couple of weeks ago, and I didn't want to make it about myself because that episode was for our runners, but I was listening intently. I heard his words and uh, I really felt comfortable and confident that 
running at a easier exertion from the very beginning rather than trying to, to gut something out that wasn't realistic and then sort of fading ridiculously at the end was not a good plan for me. And I am really glad that I came to terms with where I am well before the race. But some highlights for me included, um, and many people saw this, oh my God, there was, a blow, up, there was a blow up photo of Will Smith <laughs> on the left side, runner's left on the course, where the person holding it yelled, slap him, slap him. And every runner ran by and slapped Will Smith. That was amazing. Um, I loved seeing the golden retriever, Spencer, who received an honorary who received an honorary medal um, and was recognized. And uh, it was great to see Spencer, the puppy, healthy around mile two. Um, I, of course, got to see my family and that was really special. Um, when I started running this race in 2007, Noah was three, Ella was seven months. And I had qualified when I was pregnant, before I got pregnant with her at a race after Noah was born, but before I got pregnant with Ella. So um, that race, uh, was in a nor'easter and that kind of started my Boston trajectory and having them there as Noah is about to graduate and is now an adult and is 18 was really meaningful that it worked out that way that they were able to come and the fact that they wanted to come and uh, cheer on their mom I'm gonna cry it just meant the world to me because you know you just hope that your kids notice the things you do because you know you can't tell kids like you need to do this, they won't do it. But sometimes you just have to do the thing and you hope they see when you're doing the thing that doing the thing is really, really good for you. And the fact that they've grown up watching me train and coach and talk about running all the time. I mean, this is our life. And the fact that they still wanted to come and they weren't resentful of it, it just really meant the world to me. And I was so grateful that Darren figured it out and he was so awesome about getting up there they stayed with my uncle. They had the best time and um, seeing them at mile six and a half and then again at 13 and then again at 20, it just really lifted me up so much and it made the race so much fun. My aunt also was with them at mile 13. It was so special and I just, I couldn't get over it. It was really great. So the last five miles for me were, were relatively, and I don't mean to sound like this is always the case. They were relatively easy and that's really weird to say, but Again, I had started out at a comfortable pace. I wasn't feeling any pressure on the hills. I never had to walk. And best news of all, I did not have that moment that I usually have around mile 16. I've had it a couple of times with Ken Traumatori. When I've run with Ken, I had it last year on my own. Didn't have it at all. And I really believe, Lisa, that that was a carbohydrate issue. Because like you, you know, I just talked about the carb loading that I did before the race. But like you, I took those Mortons every 30 minutes religiously, not 35, 30. And they went down so easily. I love Morton's. I am a huge fan now. I know you tried it first, the last Boston, and I was still doing the Honey Stinger Chews. I'm so glad that you convinced me to switch to Morton. It was so, and we're not sponsored by Morton. It, they just went down so easily. And I did two caffeinated Morton's. I did one at 30 minutes in, and then I did another one. Um, it probably it was like two hours and 30 minutes in. And uh, I did the very last Morton I took, I did probably about a quarter of a caffeinated one. And that was basically got me through the last two and a half miles. And uh, I felt really good. I didn't have pain. 
I didn't feel like my breathing was super labored. Uh, and when I finished, I just walked right to the hotel, which was amazing. Awesome. And literally got right in the shower. There was one oh. thing I want to mention, and that is something that I feel like I need to mention. And that is, even though I felt like I wasn't overexerting myself, my heart rate on this run was through the roof. So that's not good. And so I did today, um, I made an appointment with a sports cardiologist in Fairfax. I'm going to get checked out. I know that there's a lot of folks that are in my shoes. In fact, um, Elizabeth Clore, who's been on our podcast before, who um, dealt with an Omicron bout in early um, in her training cycle as well, wrote up a nice blog post where she talked about her heart rate and uh, she had a great race, but she mentioned her heart rate was through the roof as well. And I don't think that it's something, and I looked at my heart rate compared to October and October was a hotter day. This was a cooler day. So theoretically my heart rate should have been the same if were much lower, given that I was running slower and it wasn't at all. So just something to note, you know, I'm taking care of it. I've got an appointment. I, I just, you know, I really think that my, how, how do I say this? There is a reason to still be cautious about COVID because we're athletes. We want to take care of ourselves. And this has really dragged me down. And I know I'll get better. I, I mean, it's not a first world problem. I'm certainly able to function fine. I'm very, very fortunate. I'm not even trying to claim I'm a long hauler. I'm not. This is very trivial in the scheme of things, but it is impacting my athletic performance. I see it. The writing's on the wall and I need to figure out if there's anything I can do to improve upon it. Yeah. Hopefully from, you know, anecdotally, we've heard it's time. It's just time. It could take a year for you to get back to kind of where your heart rate was before, but we are seeing this consistently with our runners, with runners that we know we're hearing it anecdotally. That is the, the, the common thread is this higher heart rate at similar or easier exertion levels or paces. So that, you know, I know Elizabeth had mentioned in her blog, just going up the hills and Newton spiked her heart rate and made her feel like she was running a one mile or 5k race. Like that shouldn't happen. Um, so it, it, it is very scary. And I will say kind of as a side note, I was, um, a little bit just maybe shell shocked or uh, maybe I'm, you know, I don't know, but, uh, you know, not a lot of mask wearing this weekend, a lot of big crowds, a lot of, uh, indoor, you know, expo and the mask mandates are gone and, you know, on our flights home. But by the time between coming, going to Boston and going home, the airline flight mandate, the mask mandate was, was knocked down. So, you know, my, my flight yesterday was, I mean, the airport yesterday, I would say 20% mask wear wearing at the most. Um, my flight was maybe 30 or 40% mask wearing. And I think masks have gotten us, you know, at least part of the way towards, towards, you know, keeping, keeping healthy. And, and it's just, um, you know, and, and as the, the, these mass mandates were lifted, especially in the airports, I was also watching a news article that, or news, uh, you know, whatever, something, something in the news that um, the highest rates of COVID right now are in Massachusetts, New York, and one other New England state. So it was like the numbers there are the highest and they were taking away the mass mandate. So I was very nervous since I've been home. I've actually, I took a rapid COVID test last night when I got home. And I took one today again, and I'm going to think, take one every day. Just, you know, I'm worried about my kids. Like, you know, if I contracted it when I was there, for some reason, you know, I want to make sure to catch it early, but so far not going what I feel okay. But it was, it was a little scary. It was a little bit, you know, for we've been in this COVID, you know, heightened state of alert for two years and we've all been wearing masks and keeping distance and staying home and, you know, everything's been modified and all of a sudden things were, you know, not back to normal, but, you know, pretty, 
pretty, you know, the crowds are back, the, you know, people weren't wearing masks and it, it was a little bit scary to me. So, you know, and, I, and, you know, I kind of jokingly said, well, now that I'm done with Boston, like, it's okay. <laughs> okay. I didn't want to get COVID before Boston, but now, but really no, like, you know, we should all be careful and mindful of, you know, it, it, we don't know what the effects are, you know, but yeah, if it was just a cold and just cold symptoms and that was it, then, you know, then, then maybe there's more, you know, more ability to take a risk. But I, I was, I was just a little bit nervous all weekend with the, with the level of, non-masked and crowds. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to go off on a tangent, and I know everyone has strong opinions, but, you know, I see both sides. Look, you know, I want my kids to be able to go to school without masks. I want everyone to be able to see each other's faces. I, the, the mental health, you know, component of this is, is real. And so, you know, I look at it at this point for me, it's like, I'm an athlete. I have personal goals. So if I choose to wear my mask because I want to keep myself protected. I know it works and I'm not going to judge anyone for not wearing theirs because we're at a point now where, you know, everyone needs to do what's best for them and that's fine. I'm just saying like it, it isn't for some people, it's just a cold. And honestly, if we weren't athletes, we wouldn't care as much because it is just a cold. I had a cold in January. That's all I had. I had a cold and a fever, but I recovered. It's just because we're marathoners, we know all this, these things about how our bodies function and our, our performance is important to us. And so that impact for our world and our lives is extra important. So to your point, Lisa, it is surprising when we're with a group of athletes and everyone else is a marathoner and wants to perform well. It's just, you know, you kind of want to say like, oh, just, you know, think about the benefit of just keeping that mask on the plane when you're inside in this capsule just for that hour because you just ran a marathon and your immune system's low and you really want to keep running. So, yeah. you know, we're not judging people for- <laughs> No, I feel like it was just for me, it was, you know, for yeah. me, it was just a, almost like a, not a culture shock, but, you know, it was like a, an adjustment to like yeah. go from kind of one extreme to the other all. And because Boston is just a crowded weekend, it's crowds everywhere. Like everywhere yeah. you go, there are crowds. And so it was just a little bit of, of a shock. So anyway- um, you know, we finished the race. We luckily got to go right back to our hotel shower, which is like the best feeling ever. And we had set up, uh, you had actually organized, you know, kind of our uh, running club get together. And we'd let our, you know, some of our runners know too, that anyone who wanted to meet up with us at the bar in our hotel, which had an outside area, which was really nice too. So that was great. We just literally went back downstairs, got to celebrate. And for us, it felt so good to know we were staying that night. Like I really, um, you know, felt good, but we also had our eye on the clock because we knew that Dave McGillery had started his um, his 50th running of his Boston Marathon. He runs it after the race because he's up all day on his feet running, literally running the race, and then he has to go run the race. And we knew that they were going to finish about 7:30, 8 o'clock, and we wanted to be at that finish line to to watch that and support him and and um, you know the other runners that were running with him. So we made our way back to the finish line in um kind of hung out there and we had the privilege and excitement of watching him come in and not only that but the kind of the festivities that happened afterwards at the at the finish line um you know all the um you know the the runners that came to congratulate him including meb including bobby including catherine um you know to see him with his family uh Don't. that was just Don't yes was there, right yes yeah right yep she was there like so to see all of them there and and, and to hear him, he was being interviewed by the TV cameras and we were right there, just, you know, everyone could come up and it wasn't, you know, we didn't use our media passes even for that, but, you know, we're right there and listening into him talk about what it meant to him. And, 
Um, and, and, you know, really to me, the most remarkable thing that I remember was when Meb came up to him and they, you know, hugged and the two of them to me really embody the spirit and the goodness of runners and of the marathon. They're both such good hearted people who really care and who are just, um, just, you know, approachable and supportive. And to see the two of them together was really, really um, great. Like I thought that was such a highlight of our weekend and something we would not have experienced and we haven't experienced before because we haven't stayed, um, you know, through the night. And um, that, so that was, that was really great. So we, we both got back to the hotel room that night and like, we couldn't remember we were up past midnight because we were like, we know we should go to bed, but we're on such a high from the day. You know, you're just on this like adrenaline high. Yeah, it was really spectacular to be able to witness that event. And um, we've never met Dave in person, which is crazy. And so we got to, we, got to, we did introduce we ourselves. And we got to see another one of our past podcast guests, one of the most downloaded episodes, Rachel Glazer, who's uh, lives in Boston and knows the city like the back of her hand. And she, of course, was our guest on the very popular spectating episode did a couple of years ago and Rachel was there to see Dave finish because she's a friend of his so it was really such a treat and Lisa it's so cool because like we just we are so fortunate to know such amazing people who happen to be runners and I feel like when we're in this community in this bubble that I like to call like a Dungeons and Dragons equivalent of a conference for runners that's the Boston Marathon we we are fortunate these people that we have connected with that we reference um, on this episode and in the past, we connect with them not because they happen to be good runners. We connect with them because they're great people that happen to be runners. And it's so cool that everyone was together this weekend and nobody has any pretenses. I mean, we're standing there with Joan and with Meb. And I mean, these people easily could have pretenses. I mean, they are the most talented runners in the world and if they want to have an aura about them, they can. They don't. They don't have any errors about them. They're because, runners just like us. Yes, stars just like us. Um, so it was just really, really fun. And it was neat to see Dave um, cross the finish line with his very close friend, Tom Grilk, who is retiring from the BAA this year. And um, I, I felt, I don't know if you felt this. I'm sure you did too. I felt the emotion not only of Dave finishing his 50th consecutive marathon, but also doing it alongside a, a dear friend who he's worked with side by side through some really tough, tough Boston marathon moments, including 2013. And then of course, um, navigating through 2020. So seeing them together as he crossed the finish line was quite moving. It was. And, um, you know, just a segue into Tuesday, you, you know, you had an early flight, so you had to go, but I um, had the privilege of going to the post-race press conference, you know, finally got to use the press badge. It's like, although they weren't really checking, so I don't know if anyone could have gone in. I was actually surprised. There were very many people at the press conference. It was, you know, maybe uh, 20, 30 members of the press. It was very low key, um, but it was amazing. You know, they first brought up um, Dave and the um, director of medical and the director, the operations director to speak and kind of give an overview of what, you know, what the day was like. And the theme was that this was the perfect Boston Marathon. So we have all these, you know, different Boston Marathons. We've got the hot marathon. We've got, unfortunately, you know, the bombing year. We've got the, you know, the, the torrential downpour year of 2018. We've got different years, different things happen. And they said this year really could not have gone off more 
perfectly. So for perfect weather, perfect execution. They talked about um, uh, the um, the you know the schedule for the shuttles that they in the morning that they have it all planned out and that the last um, athlete shuttle should should arrive in Hopkinton at 10:45. And they said it hardly ever happens. You know something happens, things get backed up, things get delayed a little bit. You know things happen and you know they have to quickly uh, you know adapt and think on their feet. And the last shuttle arrived in Hopkinton at 10:45, and everything, you know, just went perfectly. Um, so, um, you know, they talked about the number of medical, um, you know, uh, incidents. They they had, um, I think, it was about 1,500, um, you know, kind of exchanges. I forget what they call them, but they're basically, you know, anyone who visits a medical tent. And most of those were at the finish line. I think it was like over a thousand were at the finish line, and four or five hundred were on the course. I think they had about 70. Um, athletes have to go to the area emergency rooms for minor things, nothing, you know, nothing significant, um, but everything went flawlessly. And Dave really underscored that the reason it does that is because they have such an amazing team um, from the volunteers to the you know, people who have worked with the BAA and, um, you know, uh, that are on the race committee. Um, they just have an amazing team and, you know, everything came together this year. And I felt like it was really appropriate that after so many years of just challenges and, you know, uh, so much that we've gone through that kind of everybody deserved a perfect year. And that was, that was really neat. And, um, you know, after they were up, they um, brought the champions up. So we had the men's win the men's overall winner and the, um, the uh, female overall winner, the two wheelchair champions. Um, and they got to come up and, you know, uh, the um, media director, Kendra Butters, who was very helpful to us in getting us um, you know, our press passes, uh, she kind of moderated and asked them a few questions and opened it up to the floor. And I was actually surprised that there were not a lot of questions. So I kind of thought, all right, I'm going to ask a few questions. Good for you. So you had texted me before I went. Yeah, you know, I thought we're right here. We were sitting in the front row, like, you know, why not ask some questions? So, um, you know, one of the first questions I actually asked Dave in the first part of the, um, you know, the, the press conference, uh, you know, he's been running this for 50 years, kind of what are the biggest changes that he's seen? And I'm trying to remember now, I should have written them down. He told me there was, he said there were three, it was technology, security, maybe it was the numbers, I forget, but you know, really how the technology has changed over the years to make things, you know, easier or, or you know, more streamlined, um, you know, the security concerns have changed over the years. Um, and, uh, you know, just talked a little bit about that. You know, you talked about, uh, it was interesting to me that, um, you know, that they have the, the core of the race down to such a science now and such a, they're, they're so good at it, that they've been able to focus on um, the kind of ancillary things that go, you know, the fan fest, the, you know, just kind of the things of the extras and that they've been able to add enhancements, that's what you kind of call them, um, enhancements. Uh, that to, to the race. So, um, you know, that that's been kind of nice that they've been able to do that. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so that was really neat. Um, I'm trying to think if I asked any other questions then, um, when they brought the athletes out, you had texted me right before, um, to send me a kind of an interesting observation. I think it was from one of the dietitians that you follow or that we've worked with that said they noticed that the female winner Perez, um, she had taken her bottle, chosen to take her bottle, her elite bottle with 1.2 miles, two kilometers to go. And that, you know, required her to kind of step, step back a little bit and, you know, kind of fall behind the, you know, her, her other competitors. I, I think there was maybe just two of them at that point. Um, and, you know, that that was an interesting decision. Like, you know, I, I, like I said before, <laughs> 
at 1.2 miles left to go, I was like, I'm not taking any more nutrition, but she did. And, um, uh, you know, the post that we had read was, you know, did she actually ingest something that there's been shown that just swishing carbohydrate, um, you know, uh, nutrition or, you know, carbohydrate drink in your mouth actually can prolong um, the point of fatigue until you, whatever, you know, put off the point of fatigue for about 15 minutes. So had she actually you know, ingested something and she just switched it around. And so I actually asked her, I said, you know, your decision to take nutrition with just two kilometers left, is that something you planned? Is that something you normally do? Um, did it help you? Do you think it helped you with your final kick? And what she said was, um, you know, um, that she had had dehydration in the past and had suffered from dehydration in the past and she wanted to make sure she was staying hydrated. So I don't know if that included nutrition in the hydration that she had, but that seemed to be more of her of her focus, um, you know, a, another member of the media asked her about her her mental focus and um, you know what the kind of mental um, focus it took to win. And she basically said, "I came in and I decided I was going to be the winner," and and that was you know that's when you say that's what you're going to do. She said, "If you want to win, you have to tell yourself you're the winner," and that was you know, that was really remarkable to me. I liked hearing from the wheelchair champion, so the men's wheelchair champion. Um, Daniel Romanchuk, he is actually from Mount Airy, Maryland, which is right near us. Uh, and he talked about, you know, the um, kind of the the, the top contender, um, Marcel Hoog, I think his name is, for the wheelchair um, competition, pulled out at the last minute. Like, really, he didn't know until he got to the start line that he had pulled out. So it's like, you know, your top competitor, all of a sudden you get to the start line and they're not there. And how that sort of had to, you know, that's like kind of a mental mind shift at that point. And, you know, he talked too about his, you know, his, what he knew was his weak, her weakness, his weaknesses and his strengths. And that, you know, he knows he's not as strong on the downhills as some of the other riders and how he planned his strategy. So that was really interesting to, to listen to. Uh, the, uh, relevant to what you're talking about before, the women's wheelchair winner, Manuela Shar, she um, had COVID two weeks ago and she didn't quite know how it was gonna affect her in this race. And she asked her uh, coach, in the last two weeks, should I drop out? You know, should I should I drop out of the race? You know, because I had um, she was not be able to finish her training. Just very similar to you, she said I wasn't able to get in my training and that I didn't know where I was. This is the her um, opening race for the season. She didn't have any you know build up races for this, and she just didn't know. And she asked her coach, and her coach said that is not an option. So she said, okay, I guess you know I'm going to the start line. And luckily, you know, she fared well. So that was really interesting to hear um, the men's. Winner Evans Chabet, he actually had a translator there um, who helped translate uh, the questions for him and, you know, talked about, um, uh, you know, he, his top contender that was with him, uh, I think the second place male um, is a, is a training partner of his, of his, and, you know, kind of how that played out and the advice that he had given, they had given each other, they had taught what they had talked about beforehand and, um, you know, uh, uh, it was just a very, you know, interesting, but again, not, not a ton of questions. It was went pretty quickly to um, an opportunity for photos. And um, this was a fun, they had the, you know, the champion, um, the, the trophy, the, what do you, I don't call it, the, whatever, the silver trophy, the big cup. And, uh, you know, they took pictures with it. And after I noticed, the, you know, the BAA committee member that was holding it, I said, can I get a picture with that? He was standing right there. I said, hey, can I get a picture with that? And he said, yes, but... And I don't know if this is actually true of the rule, but he said, yes, but I have to hold it and stand with you. Um, or you can take a picture of me holding it because only champions or BA committee members are allowed to touch it. Love so it. I did get a picture of it. it, but I wasn't touching it. I said, ooh, I don't want to like break any juju or anything or any protocol. So I did get a picture with that. And that was 
um, just really kind of a cool experience to have to be able to be there. And, um, you know, everyone hung out afterwards. I could have like, you know, they, they, the athletes stay for a while and, or, you know, anyone can go up and have a conversation with them. You know, at that point I knew they were probably tired and tired of talking and I, I really didn't have any specific questions that I, you know, burning questions to ask them. So kind of made my way out and started getting ready to leave. But I thought that was a really fun um, experience to be able to go to that press conference and hear kind of the the recap of everything from the race director and from the officials from the race, you know, the, again, director of operations, the medical director to hear their report on the race. That was really interesting. And, um, and then to get to hear from the champions themselves. And I mentioned to you earlier, I thought it was actually kind of reassuring to see the male and female winners um, walk in similar to the way we are walking today. You know, they were definitely sore. And actually one of the other press members asked um, Perez, are you sore today? And she said, a marathon is a marathon. Yes, I am sore. So I thought, <laughs> she said, I ran, like, I ran a marathon. Like, yes, I am sore today. So I was like, yes, that's, that's you know, validating that, you know, they they feel sore too. They're, they're hurting too. So um, that's yeah, great. And yes. Did, did okay. you get a chance yet to watch the end of the women's race that that yes. was incredible that was incredible yeah, it was a surge pass, pass you know whatever it was you know just this um kind of cat and mouse game of like one would surge the other would surge one would surge the other surge and as they took that that um left down Boylston um you know Paris just made that final big surge and just widened that gap eventually enough but that was a really just a really um a pretty amazing finish so amazing and can we talk for a minute about Molly Seidel's decision to drop out yeah. of the race. She had a hip impingement and Boston's her home course. I mean, she was really so excited to run this race, was of course, like any champion, ready to win the whole thing and prepared. And she uh, realized that she was not going to be able to finish without pain and made the difficult decision in spite of being on a world stage in her on her home turf where she trained for many years that she was going to drop out. And I just, I really admire her for doing that. It takes a lot of courage. And um, I hope that more and more athletes will take note of what she did and others do to, to live to run another day because running and finishing a race injured, just so you can say you finished or because you're afraid of what people will think if you quote unquote quit, is not going to serve the body well. And I just really appreciated her honesty and, and sharing that it was devastating for her to make this decision, but by doing so, she will save her body and be able to continue to compete. And she'll be back in Boston, there's no question, but I just really appreciated that. And we'll touch on this more when we release our pod, live podcast episode that we did. But Megan Christian, um, who was one of the two women that we interviewed for the live podcast, she had a very similar story uh, that she will share. But I just, I hope more and more professionals will continue to share their stories of injury and how they manage that. Because I feel like if that is normalized, then the amateur everyday runner will not feel like they need to run through injury to complete a marathon because it's quote Boston, or it's, you know, this streak or that streak. It's, it's our bodies are what's most important. And, you know, sometimes we have to be realistic and say, you know what, my body is not going to be able to, to do this today. Or if I do do it, I could really hurt myself in the long run. And I want to live to run another day. So I appreciated that Molly was honest about that from the very beginning, because that takes courage too, to 
probably the yep. last thing she wanted to do was talk to a bunch of reporters after dropping out of a race, but she took the time to do that. And as a coach and as an athlete, I appreciated that. Yep, and that's um, our local runner here, Ben Beach, who had the longest running streak, Boston streak, made that decision this year too. And I, reading the article that where he was quoted, he talked about you know having to respect that you know his family is really important to him, and you know he knew that it would be a you know it it, it could be a da dangerous for him, and you know he really owed it to his family to 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 make this decision now. And that's I mean look, that's a, talk about a streak like that's how did he give that up? But that he was smart and he just knew that this was the time to. You know, a streak is just a streak until it's broken. And then, you know, it's like, I think it's like that, that breaking it is probably the hardest, but once it's broken, you know, you're kind of, you're, you're done, you're past that and you can, you can move on. So I, I, I agree. I think that it would be nice to see more athletes who are making that right decision to, um, to, to really make the decision for their long-term, their longevity in the sport versus that immediate, whatever they feel like the expectation is from whomever, from themselves or from their family or their friends or their followers or their fans or whatever it might be, but making that decision that is in the best interest of their longevity in the sport. So, um, but yeah, so we both got home eventually yesterday and um, I had, I had a kind of a delayed flight and a little bit of craziness at the airport, but made it home. And um, we are trying to catch up now with everything that, you know, we have a great weekend, but then we get back home to, to reality. And, um, but I feel like, and you probably feel like this too. I know we both feel this way that this, um, everything that we experience will buoy us through this entire, for me, almost the entire year. It's just the, the energy and the excitement and um, the high that we get really just lifts us up and, and, and keeps it. We, we stay up there, uh, you know, for, for quite some time. And I'm just so glad we're back. Like that, that was, it was great to be back. It's great to be back in our normal rhythm of the year and um, just so exciting. And now it's time to recover. So anybody who's run Boston or has run a marathon, you know, recently, uh, we all feel great and we're on this high and we want to go like run and, you know, the weather is getting nicer, um, but we have to respect the recovery. And I, I per actually personally feel really good today. Like I have very, very little soreness, but I know my body is recovering. And we generally tell people about three to four weeks for, until your body's fully recovered. And it doesn't mean you can't run for three to four weeks, but everything should be easy. This is the time to um, do some cross training, do focus on strength, focus on recovery, get some extra sleep as great as you might feel. And, you know, on this high, like I'm going to go run a 10 K next week and I'm going to go do this. Now I'm going to go get back into my normal mileage. Like, you know, take a step back, realize that your body's still been through a marathon. It is going to take time to recover. We see um, as coaches, and we've seen this with, you know, runner with runners that we know, and we've seen it anecdotally. Um, this is the highest um, likelihood. This is like the highest incident of injury happens after, uh, after a marathon, you're, you know, you're, you're, immune systems down. So you're more prone to, to getting sick. And, um, but also we just see a lot of, a lot of injuries that come up after marathon from people jumping back in too quickly. This is the time to really just dial it back. I think mentally too, it's really important, especially, I mean, there's a lot of us, including you and me, we, we train for two Boston's and ran two Boston's in six months. It's a lot of Boston. That's a lot of thinking about Boston, a lot of training, a lot of wear and tear on our bodies. So this is a great time to just take a mental break and a physical break from thinking about training and just, just kind of chill out. And I'm really looking forward to that myself. And yeah, Lisa, I say this every year. I so love our time together and spending the weekend with you. It's so special. And 
I just love our tradition so much. I don't take it for granted one bit. And it was really just as uh, Dave McGilvery mentioned in the press conference, it was the perfect weekend. So thank you for everything. And thank you for always supporting me. And um, I just really appreciate being able to lean on you and having you as my partner in crime and doing this with you year after year. I do not take it for granted for one second. You could not have said it better. And like I said, I, I, I'm i glad we don't have another Boston in six months, but I'm a little sad we don't have another Boston in six months because I've waited a whole year until we are back, but it gives us something to look forward to every year. And um, it's it's been it's been a great ride and um, we've got many more, many more ahead of us. And, um, you know, like you said, now we get a little time to mentally decompress and hopefully ride this high for a bit, but the, the pictures, the memories, the experiences we have, they are always like top in my mind. So thank you. Thank you to Darren for letting me borrow you for the weekend and letting, <laughs> you, letting you, you know, be my, be my partner for the weekend and room with me and, um, you know, uh, and, and for, you know, supporting you and bringing the kids up to see you. And, uh, it just, it, it was one for the, it was one for the record books. It was, it was, this will always be in my mind, what we'll remember is the perfect Boston. For sure, 100%. So on that note, let's go to sleep. <laughs> it's late. Amen. I knew it would take a long time. But anyway, have a great night and thank you again. Bye, Lisa. Bye, Julie. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryant. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.